Welcome back, everyone, to the Higher Ground Society podcast. This is your host, Gerald Crook, uh, and we're back from a bit of a hiatus. Um, We had our last episode that aired in January, and uh, due to a lot of moving around and life happening, we kind of took the month of February off, but don't uh, fret. We do have a Black History Month episode coming up later, even if it is a little delayed. Um, but currently, we are in the month of March, which, if you are unaware, it is the um, it is Women's History Month, where we take some time to um, reflect and recognize all of the incredible women um, throughout history who have basically made the world what it is. And if you know, like I know, that's a lot. That's pretty much every woman. <laughs> so, um, and so yeah, the, the episodes for this month will all be um, dynamic, phenomenal women who have contributed not only to um, the state of Alabama, but to uh, the country as a whole. And um, we're gonna get to know them and their work and just learn from them, sit at their feet. And I am so delighted and honored and thrilled to have our first guest for the month, uh, Dr. Minnie Bruce Pratt. And uh, hi, Dr. Pratt, how are you? (laughs) Hey there, Gerald. Thank you so much for having me on this very interesting program and just getting to get to know you a little bit, too. Absolutely. Yeah, I've already kind of enjoyed our um, our previous little pre-conversation. I'm I'm very excited about the rest of what we have. Um, So... Let's just jump right into it. Tell us about yourself. Who who are you and how do you fit into this Women's History Month program? You, you know, that's what a good question. Who am I? <laughs> that's a kind of deep question. What I can say, what I can say is um, I'm somebody who is deeply of Alabama. Sure. I'm living right now in Syracuse, New York, Mm -hmm. but I've also never left Alabama. I still live part of the year in the house I grew up in, in Mm -hmm. Centerville, Alabama, which is in Bibb County, right in the middle of the state, little bitty county. Northern part of it is coal mining. Southern part of it was cotton, and now it's uh, mostly pine plantations. A lot of the county is owned by people who don't live there, mm. um, you know, big corporations. But still, a lot of us still do live there. And the beautiful Cahaba River runs through it, That's which amazing. is the river I belong to, the Cahaba. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I I still deeply identify as an Alabamian. I wish I had, you know, we uh, your listeners can't see us if, if they could, they could, I could go get my Bama hat and put it on. I, I have one I wear everywhere, a, ba- a cap. Um, I was born in Selma. Mm-hmm. I was born in Selma because it was the nearest hospital. I'm mm-hmm. 74, so there, that was before there were the regional, you know, the small regional hospitals. Mm-hmm. And I was born in Selma, but I grew up in Centerville. I was raised there. I went to high school there. I went to college at the university and that was just the University of Alabama, now UA Tuscaloosa. Sure. Um, I actually enrolled there the year after Wallace stood in the door at Foster Auditorium and said segregation forever and then was proved wrong <laughs> immediately. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> to the credit of the people who, uh, the, the young people who were uh, registering 
uh, as African-American people for the first time at the university. I I lived in Alabama. My first son was born at Druid City. I lived there. And then I, um, right after he was born, I moved to North Carolina to go to graduate school mm-hmm. and have moved north steadily for work ever since, mm-hmm. like so many people. Mm-hmm. But I've always had a home base in Alabama um, and, and I still do. And I'm, I, I come home three or four times a year to just live and stay and work, do organizing, you know, I'm just very much of the, of the state and the history of the state has been, the history of struggle in the state has been very important to me. What Mm -hmm. I've learned about the part of resistance to oppression. I've learned first and foremost from Alabama. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And later it got deepened in other places. Mm-hmm. But first and foremost, I learned about it in Alabama. And um and and not, you know, at first not directly, because I was coming up under segregation. Mm-hmm. But I saw on television the demonstrations the the narration was all segregation the overvoice mm-hmm. but the pictures showed the resistors mm-hmm. and that was when i began to understand something about um the gap between what i was being told was the truth and reality which mm-hmm. was a segregationist narration mm-hmm. and the fact there was another world. Sure. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I, I I feel like the 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 liberation movement, the Black Civil Rights Movement in Alabama, even though I was never part of a allyship with that when mm-hmm. I was young, it intervened in my life mm-hmm. and started me along the right, the correct path. Sure. Yeah. So um, backing up, you went to uh, University of Alabama. That's in, that's uh, I, I forgive you as an Auburn graduate. I for, I'm just kidding. <laughs> that's <laughs> okay. We, we can have, we're, we're we're all one big Alabama family. Uh, <laughs> you know, but but really, so you went to Alabama, and and what was it that you studied there? Well, I I was an English major. Okay. I um, I always thought. I always thought I would be a teacher. My grandmother okay. was a teacher. Mm-hmm. She, in fact, she started teaching in a one-room schoolhouse in Choctaw, Alabama, mm-hmm. again, inside segregation, but she was in her teens. Mm-hmm. She had people in the class who were older than her, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. But she was teaching, and then eventually she got a teaching certificate at, at what was then Livingston Normal College, I think. Okay. Um, and... Uh, and my mother had taught briefly, but then she had become a social worker. I just thought I would be a teacher. And I went to, I, I started out thinking I'd teach high school. Mm-hmm. And then I had professors who were encouraging me to go further, to okay. go, to go, you know, to, to, um, to go on to graduate school. Okay. And they encouraged me. And so I did, I applied to a doctoral program. It was, you know, it was, um, 
1960, I graduated from Alabama in 1968, mm-hmm. and it was just, you know, there were a lot, there was a lot of ferment in the country at the mm-hmm. time, mm-hmm. and uh, there were, this, there were the anti the anti-war demonstrations about the war on Vietnam, uh, the women's liberation movement was just starting. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it was the, the LGBTQ movement was about to take off. Mm-hmm. So I was able to get um, scholarship to grad school in English at Chapel Hill mm-hmm. in, in North Carolina. Mm-hmm. And in part, I was able to get a scholarship because it was wartime and the men who would have been in the graduate program were being drafted. Mm-hmm. That's the second time I've So we had a, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And so I was able to get in. I, I don't know that I would have, oh. you know. Um, and then we were, um, we were, we were about three quarters of the grad students in my year were, were, were women, mm-hmm. which was unusual, mm-hmm. wow. right? We had more than half of my class were women. Mm-hmm. And we were also um, in the Chapel Hill area. We were in an area that was being very deeply influenced by the beginning of women's liberation. Okay. So, that there were um, consciousness raising groups. There was a class that was taught off campus. Mm-hmm. The, the university wouldn't let wouldn't let women teach a class on campus for free. They wouldn't let them anybody. They wouldn't let the women. There was somebody in the history department, a grad student, who wanted to teach a for a free class in women's history on campus. If the school would just let her have a a room to teach uh-huh. it in, uh-huh. the university wouldn't do it. They wouldn't uh-huh. allow it. So she used her own money and she rented a, 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 a space on the main street in Chapel Hill, like an upstairs above one of the stores or something mm-hmm. and taught the class for free there. Mm-hmm. So there was, it was a very, you know, there was a lot of conservative pushback, sure. but I got to know, are the people who were in women's liberation? There were some. There were people in my department who were active, mm-hmm. and that's how I started to become acquainted with. I, I was married. I was married, and I had two. I, I had. I already had a baby, and I had another one while I was in grad school. Okay. Um, and that was an eye opener. Like I tried to get married student housing, and they wouldn't give it to me because because I wasn't a, a male graduate student. Huh. You know, I, I I was completely oblivious to all this at the time. You know, I was used to like being a smart young girl, the mm-hmm. only child, okay. a young white a young white girl, mm-hmm. right? And suddenly, I was in this place where they were saying, "No, you can't do that because mm-hmm. you're a woman." And I was just like, and of course, I'm from this family of women who were just, as you said at the beginning of your program, you know the South is full of women who just go out and do things. Mm-hmm. And that was my, those, that was the women in my family. And mm-hmm. I, I was just like, you, you're telling me I can't do things. Wow. You know, mm-hmm. I, I would uh, later on, as I 
progressed in my degree. I had interviewed for a job. This wasn't in Alabama. This was in Ohio. And the people who interviewed me said things like, oh, you have such a pleasant, you have such a pleasant voice. You know, it would be really nice to listen to you in the meetings. <laughs> and then they would say things like, but who's going to take care of your children? Why? This is during a job interview. Yeah. Well, it's, you know, it's 1969, 1970, 1971. Mm-hmm. Women's liberation was just revving up. Sure. And there were a lot of like unreconstructed guys around <laughs> who hadn't learned like they shouldn't say things like that. And there was no legislation yet either. Sure. There was no, no legislation. Very cool. So <laughs> I got, yeah, yeah. I got, um, I got involved in women's liberation and, um, you know, for instance, I was part of a little delegation that went to our department head and said, three quarters of us are women, but you're not hiring teaching assistants at the same rate that mm-hmm. we're represented. And you need to match our percentage with the hiring of the teaching assistants. It was a real lesson. I was nervous. The person I went in with was a woman who was more experienced than I at confrontation. Mm -hmm. We were very calm and polite, but we just said, this is what needs to happen. It was a great moment because I looked at his hands, the department chair, Mm -hmm. white guy, he was a poet actually, and his hands were shaking. He was frightened of us. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> That's actually not surprising i mean it, it, if you if you it, 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 he sounds like a smart guy that's what he said could be afraid uh, <laughs> but it was you know that was the beginning that was sort of the opening of the door in terms of my activism I was see. there and so, on the, in chapel hill yeah and so okay so uh we're tracking i like to kind of do these timelines so you're at, at ua you were studying english um, with a focus on poetry, correct? Well, I was trying to focus on poetry. <laughs> but that was the, I mean, you know, it's so strange to look back. You know, I was 18, I was 19, I was 20. Mm-hmm. And I began to write poetry mm-hmm. um, through in the encouragement of a professor. Mm-hmm. And then I wanted to take a, a, a creative writing class. This mm-hmm. was before there was an actual creative writing program at the university. Mm-hmm. There was just a class that some that a that a that a professor taught who was also a poet. So I tried to get into the class the first time they wouldn't let me in. Mm-hmm. The they they said, you know, I didn't I, I was too young. Mm-hmm. Then finally I got in and I remember this was the thing I really remember about this class. I'm in the class the professor is saying to me, why aren't you writing more? I'm just trying to figure out what the heck is going on. <laughs> and one of the, uh, one of the um, guys in the class said to me, oh, it's okay that you're not writing. Beauty is its own ex- excuse for being. Meaning all I had to do was just sit there and be pretty. And sure. that would be enough in life <laughs> what, a, what a very slick way to, to be condescending oh my god right right and of course i'm trying to figure out 
through all this maze of sexism, mm-hmm. who the heck am I and what do I have sure. to say? Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. So I, I sort of stopped, you know, I got married mm-hmm. as a junior. Okay. I got pregnant. I had this baby and I thought, well, I'll go to grad school. I'll be a teacher. And it, and everybody was happy with that. My husband was a poet. My professor who had encouraged me originally said, okay, you can support your husband and he'll be the poet. That's a good arrangement. So, you know, I went and I got my, I got my, um, well, I started getting my, my degree, uh-huh. right? And then I became political, more mm-hmm. political. Mm-hmm. And I stopped working on it for a while because I was being, you know, I was being part of women's liberation sure. in Fayetteville, in Fayetteville, North Carolina. Gotcha. Okay. So that would have been around 19, by that time, it was like 1975. Okay. Okay. Well, this is also really great too, because I watched, you know, we were all kind of bound in the house last year and we were watching um, Miss America, the show on, on FX. And so that, so I took a course, I don't know if you know her, but um, when I was at Auburn, I took a course with uh, Dr. Jennifer Brooks, who focuses on uh, it was a United States history course. Course, and we get, when we got to the seventies, we talked about the women's movement, and so I kind of had my my um, introduction there. And then this TV show kind of expounded on everything that we talked about in that class, and just brought all these memories from the class back up. And so it was it was a really interesting time, as you were saying before, how you had so much stuff going on um, by seventy five. I'm I got my timeline right. I guess Vietnam was over by that time, but the the fallout, everything was still kind of just. You know, exactly. right there. It was a mess, really, really. Exactly. Exactly. Um, so it's 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 I imagine for you it was a very interesting time to find yourself in the middle of the fallout of the, like you said, the civil rights movement, the gay liberation movements coming up in 69. Um and then yeah, all the right. Yeah. It, 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 it was a crazy well, time. and I was in Fayetteville, North Carolina, which as you know, because you know, your connections yourself to UNC. Mm-hmm. Fayetteville is where Fort Bragg is. Right. The mm-hmm. 82nd Airborne. So what was happening? So I'm in Fayetteville. I've been doing women's liberation work in the Chapel Hill area, which of course is pretty liberal, mm-hmm. right? Sure. Um, so I've been, do- you know, I've been writing book reviews and I've been doing this work inside my department for like fair pay, equal pay, mm-hmm. that kind of that kind of stuff, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so then I'm in Fayetteville. Um, I moved there with my the, the man I was married to at the time. And it's like I'm back in Alabama about 10 years before. Wow. It's the southeastern part of the state, very conservative. It's where mm-hmm. Senator Jesse Helms, that it's the area that Jesse Helms represented. And your listeners may not, no Helms because he's been gone for a while, mm-hmm. but he was part of the far right of his era. Okay. And he was a man who, for instance, believed that if a woman would really was raped, she would never get pregnant. Well, that doesn't make sense. Right. He actually believed that, you know, he believed this and he preached it. Sure. And he was just a terrible, bigoted, racist Mm-hmm. anti-woman anti-everybody person so I was in his it was in his 
district his mm-hmm. that he represented. And I was there with Fort Bragg. Mm-hmm. And what was happening is that the men were coming back from Vietnam just destroyed, mm-hmm. really right. destroyed mm-hmm. and driven out of their minds, many of them, by what mm-hmm. they had seen and what they had done. Mm-hmm. And what was happening, not surprisingly, is what happens pretty much after every war and during every war, is that the men were taking some of this at least out on the women. So that what was happening was that there was just incredible domestic abuse and not just abuse, but killings. You know, men were shooting women down in the street. Mm -hmm. I'm not exaggerating. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so I became part of women's liberation there Mm -hmm. because suddenly, I mean, it was also this terribly racist you know, the middle class, the white middle class still had country clubs that did not allow Jewish people and black people in. Hmm. This is 1975. Right. So I, I'm suddenly back in my growing up years wow, in a way, <laughs> except with except with consciousness. Right. Right. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Finally, finally consciousness. Mm-hmm. And so I became more deeply involved in women's liberation at a much more gra- in a much more grassroots way. Like we started a rape crisis line for the women who were being raped to call in and get some kind of support. We started um, a network of safe houses mm-hmm. for women who were being beaten mm-hmm. or abused. Mm-hmm. Uh, we did work on wages. We mm. did work on childcare. Wow. You know, it was just a much more grassroots kind of organizing. Mm-hmm. And um, and I, you know, I, I I remember my, you know, walking down Murchison Road in Fayetteville with my stapler and <laughs> and flyers, like stapling them to the, you know, to the. Um, uh, light poles Mm -hmm, you know mm -hmm. it was like that and it was uh and it was a good good feeling it was a really good feeling to know I was part that I wasn't my father's daughter anymore Mm. going along with the racist program and the you know just the old way that I was part of the new wave Mm -hmm. of how to live and you had come into you had come into your own at that you were or at least beginning to come into your own, which is very you know a very radical and uh, profound experience for young people. I think when that moment happens, um, yeah. it's it's really it, it can be very exciting. And again, for the time period that you were in, I imagine that was a very invigorating and, and refreshing experience. It was. It was exciting, and you're right. I mean, I see the Black Lives Matter movement. Now I see, you know, that moment when the things you sort of learned in at a distance mm-hmm. come home in your own life mm-hmm. and you put it into action. Mm-hmm. There's nothing like it, mm-hmm. really. Mm-hmm. You know, to to when you know that you you're not when you know that it's not that history is happening to you, mm-hmm. that you are actually part of the people who are making history. Right. That's, there's nothing like it. And, and so that, that was, you know, that was me and Fayetteville. But the other thing that happened to me while I was there 
that was sort of connected, but not directly. I met a woman and I fell in love with her. Now mm-hmm. I was married, mm-hmm. um, uh, but it was that kind of period where, you know, we had talked about having an open marriage and, mm-hmm. you know, it, it, things that kind of ferment that was going on. Anyway, I fell in love with this woman and I said to my husband, I, you know, I think I'm going to begin a relationship with this woman. And that's when I discovered things were not so open, right? Uh, of course. And, uh, and, and ultimately what happened is that he, um, he took the children away from me. Mm. Uh, there, that was when the sodomy, that was when the crime against nature laws, which are what the sodomy statutes were called, mm. um, no same sex sexuality or no sexuality that's like same sex sexuality. So theoretically, people who are said heterosexual could have been punished under these statutes, but they never were. Of course. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. So um, they were on the on the books in every state in the country, all 50 states mm-hmm. still then. And um, when my husband threatened to take the children, I went to a lawyer in Raleigh, a woman lawyer, and I said, can he really do this? And she got up and went over to her, her law books, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. her North Carolina statutes Uh and pulled it down and opened it up and read me the statute. And then she read me the penalties. She, it's a, they were felony statutes, meaning if you were convicted, you were a felon Mm -hmm. and, uh, you could be sentenced to 20 years in jail. You could be, she read the whole thing to me. I ended up writing a poem about it. Sure. Um, you know, along with a whole lot of other poems I wrote about um, being a lesbian mother. Mm-hmm. Uh, and indeed he could, and he did. He took the children away, mm-hmm. moved them out of state, moved them to Kentucky. And uh, I had a, a divorce decree that said I couldn't have them with me if I was living with anyone else, anybody. And I couldn't take them from his home unless I went to be, to be with them with my mother or one of my aunts. Well, he lived in Kentucky. I lived in North Carolina and mm-hmm. my mother was in Alabama. Yeah. So I would just drive these 12, 14 hour days to see them. And then sometimes I had enough time to take them to, down to my mother's, but mostly I just saw them in Kentucky for years mm-hmm. and then he moved them to Wisconsin and then it was even harder. Wow. Um, you know, that was when the iron entered my soul. Mm. I said to myself, this is the worst that can be done to me. Because I, I really thought I might kill myself, wow. you know, out of grief. Mm-hmm. But I, I just said, I'm not going to be a tragedy. I'm not going to be a victim. I'm, I'm going to make a life where I resist injustice. Mm-hmm. That's going to be my life mm-hmm. because... You know, whatever whatever's going to happen to me, nothing can be as bad as this. And it's true. Other things happen, but nothing was ever, nothing was ever as devastating as when the 
Look, they were very little. They were like five and six. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, as I'm, I mean, that's one thing about the quote unquote condition of, you know, the woman or being a, a woman is that motherhood is completely distinct from, you know, any other relationship, right, <laughs> that, that could be. And to, to separate a, a woman from their child, this person who has come from literally from their 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 own body, I, I can only imagine what that would have been like. And uh, I, I think it's you are an artist. <laughs> It sounds like because you took that that pain and you flipped it and then you you turned it into something beautiful and impactful. So, wow. Um, yeah, yeah, I did. I mean, I wrote a whole book. It was called Crime Against Nature. It was mm-hmm. it came out of that, you know, like. But the real crime against nature mm-hmm. is to punish people for being who they are. Absolutely. And to sever these, you know, to to really try to destroy this beautiful love not just between me and the adult person I love but between me and my children fortunately because I took the you know because I said to myself I'm just not going to be defeated Mm -hmm. and because I was part of a movement because I couldn't have done it you know by myself Mm -hmm. I couldn't have sustained myself alone Mm -hmm. I just was determined that I wouldn't lose them, even though physically they were taken from me. Mm-hmm. And so I just worked and worked and worked over the years to mm-hmm. stay connected. And we did stay connected. Now I've got five grandchildren. Nice. I talk to them almost every week. I mm-hmm. see them all the time. You know, they run screaming into my arms. Oh, that's, beautiful. <laughs> that's beautiful. So you triumphed. Yes. Yes, but but I triumphed as part of the movement because, of course, what was happening when I was trying was that there were so many other people who were trying to. Of course. You mm-hmm. know, and so we changed the country. We did. Wow. We changed the whole country. Right, that's right. Absolutely. And, and, and you, you changed the whole country like in, in an instant, but also set the wheels in motion for even more change down the down the road and we'll, uh, I have some questions about that in particular but before I get there I want to ask so I mean you you came to I guess came out if you will in, in the more modern terms um, at a later time but one of the things that I learned about you as I was preparing for this conversation uh, there was a quote from the gay lesbian bisexual transgender queer, the, so glbtq.com, a new encyclopedia, where they said um, she or you um, recalled feeling strange and different in a completely unarticulated way when you were in high school, but did not recognize your lesbianism at the time. Um, you were being raised to be a proper Southern lady, which is to say good-mannered, church-going, and heterosexual. So I, I thought this was really poignant because I think for a lot of queer people, a lot of people who are in the, the LGBTQ community, this reckoning or coming to terms with your identity is a very unique experience uh, for each person. And it's very different. Um, but 
hopefully the outcome is all the same where we kind of do find uh, acceptance for ourselves and we're able to move on in life. So, but, and so I kind of want to ask you about that. What was that like for you as a means of like what, your journey of coming to this, this realization about yourself um, as an example to maybe somebody else who might be listening? So, yeah, I think that one of the things that's different now, I think I agree with you. Each person's journey is unique to them and you can be uncertain or unsure or feeling your way today just as much as anybody did 50 years ago. Mm-hmm. I think one thing that is different is that that there is more language sort of circulating in a public way now. Mm-hmm. Than, than than there was for me. Sure. When I was growing up, I mean, people didn't talk about sex explicitly uh, at all. And certainly, the, even though there were people in my town who were definitely deviated from the straight and narrow, <laughs> and people knew that mostly around their gender expression, there was no language for them. It might, or even you know women who we might now think of as lesbian, my mother would only say something like, she just likes women too much. Mm, okay. Like that would be as far as it would go, mm. right? So uh, there was just no real language, no way to like say to yourself, oh, I'm kind of uh, that might be who I am, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. and it, it was really driven home to me actually not that long ago. This would have been in um, you know, around 2004, 2005. My mother had dementia and I was mm-hmm. in Alabama a lot taking care of her. Mm-hmm. So one evening I went um, with a friend to a uh, uh, high school baseball game. My friend's son was playing. Okay. So we're sitting in our in our lawn chairs, you know, yelling <laughs> and and carrying on and saying, you know, batter, 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 and all that stuff that you do when you're at the baseball game. And I looked over at the bleachers and there were about five or six or seven high young high school aged folks, mm-hmm. male and female seemingly you know, and they were clearly flirting with each other that, you know, they were doing heterosexual flirting. Okay. And I looked at them and I just suddenly said to myself, oh my gosh, this is why I never fit in in high school. (laughs) I wasn't doing any of that. Mm -hmm. I wasn't flirting with people, you know, heterosexually. Mm -hmm. I wasn't even interested like Mm. no wonder they thought I was weird you know (laughs) they just thought I was sort of a brain you know somebody who read too much and Mm -hmm. studied and Mm -hmm. and that's kind of how I thought of myself Mm -hmm. but year you know decades and decades later I watched these young people flirting people from my high school or going Mm -hmm. to my high school then and I realized I was so out of sync Mm-hmm. with the sexuality, the dominant sexuality. Mm-hmm. But I didn't have any other visible person to compare myself to. Right. Mm-hmm. Not a soul. Wow. 
Wow. Not one. That, well, and, and I think that's so, that's very important to notice. I'm glad you made that distinction at the beginning of, of your, your response to that question. Uh, one of the, the greatest things that we have now is this representation for folks. And I, I can't, we can't stress it enough. Some people are like, oh, you just want to rub, you know, blackness in my face. You know, you want to rub queerness in my face. And to them, if you're not, don't fall into those categories, then sure, it might seem like it is kind of, an affront to you, but for those people who fall into those categories, it is like, hello, it's, I'm not alone. I'm not isolated. I, like it's, it really clear, clarifies some things. And so. Yeah. That's, that's and you know, that, that, that objection, that's an old, old objection sure. that's used to keep, put people down. I mean, you know, when I was coming along, it was flaunting. That was sure. the word. Well, it's okay, but don't like we want we want a little bit of ground, you know, like like maybe we got to where I don't know. I, I don't even know what the little bit of ground would be, you know. Maybe you could just it wasn't even holding hands. It was it wasn't not getting fired. I mean, all those things were still happening, mm-hmm. but it was sort of grudging social acceptance. Well, you could be at the party together. Just don't flaunt it. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. Don't flaunt. Well, but of course, then we were just like, well, what about those people on the Capitol steps who are like effing it right. in front of everybody? <laughs> like, are they not flaunting it? Yeah. You know, it's like mm-hmm. the double standard became apparent pretty quickly. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's still and there. Even though we have made so much progress, it's still very much so a very huge dichotomy and what's allowed for some folks and what isn't allowed for others. But uh, Well, didn't we, we've had several pretty dramatic examples of that recently. <laughs> I, won't, I won't get into politics, but really, you know, who can demonstrate vigorously and who can, you know, and, and who can actually do things that are illegal and they don't get punished for it and mm-hmm. who can't, mm-hmm. you know, and that's, the history of the U.S. Right. <laughs> that is a very good, straight and forward narrative, <laughs> I would say. Absolutely. Oh, my gosh. Anyway, I think you wanted to me to read a poem I had written about, which is really sort of about this moment pre-naming. Sure. You know, it's more about, like, I, you, I, I was writing this, I was in my body, but it was right at the beginning of my coming out and it was really not, you know, it was more just about like, oh, this is my body. I'm going to just be myself in my own body. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you had said, you'd asked me to read this poem call, I called Elbows. That's right. Yes. Right. So, right. so um, it had its origins actually in some women I knew um, down on down in the country in Choctaw County, where my mother's side of the family is from, mm-hmm. and my grandmother and my great aunt lived down there, and I would go there with my cousins all the time mm-hmm. to just be out in the country. And there were some neighbors there, and also over the line in Mississippi who belonged to a very strict religious sect Mm -hmm. and the women in that sect had to just completely cover their bodies. Mm -hmm. Like they, they, their 
knees, their ankles couldn't show, their necks, their arms couldn't show. They had to wear something on their head. These were, these were, you know, these were not from another country. These right. were country white Southern women, sure. right? Yeah. And um, and I started thinking about them right about the time I was coming out and I was being told, don't flaunt it, mm-hmm. you know, just hide, mm-hmm. right? So I wrote this poem thinking about the connections between those women and mm-hmm. me, right? Sure. Elbows, cover your arms. Don't let your elbows show. And that's what these neighbors over in Mississippi, these neighbors in Alabama, tell their daughters. So no elbow, plump or thin, tan or pink, will entice others to passion. But if... I thought my scrawny, two-toned elbows would lure you. If I thought my skinny, sharp-boned elbows would secure you, I'd flap my arms like a chicken, like a peafowl, like a guinea hen. When next I saw you, honey, I'd roll up my sleeves and sin, sin, sin. <laughs> I love it. I love it. I I I came across that 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 poem uh, earlier this week, and I love how bold it is and how obviously defiant and I just think that's been such a major narrative for so many women over time having to just you know show up and be defiant just in themselves you know and I, I thank you so much for reading that because that's what that poem means to me and thank you for uh, elaborating on it um, and where it came from. Yeah. Thank you for asking me. Sure. Uh, you know especially for listeners in Alabama like you, people from the country know what peafowls are. People from the country know what guinea hens are. Mm-hmm. You know, people in the city, maybe they don't, but this is like a very country poem. <laughs> sure. It is a very country poem. Mm-hmm. And it is, it is about how, you know, how deep that repression can run Mm -hmm. against female sexuality, but also how deep the resistance can run. Absolutely. Absolutely. So um, continuing with this, this narrative, just kind of retracing our steps. So you grew up rural Alabama, went to UA, studied literature, then went on to UNC. And what did you, I didn't catch the, what did you study there? Also English. Well, but I was in, I, I went further back in time. I did um, 16th, I did Renaissance literature. Gotcha. I did English Renaissance literature. Oh my goodness. Pretty <laughs> far from home. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it was a kind of escape, right? Sure. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
And so during this time, though, you've tapped into this, the world being on fire with the women's liberation movement. And then you've, you've come out to your husband and you went through this, this traumatic experience of being separated from your children. Um, but then you, you, and we decided that you triumphed and you definitely did. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Um, and, but and then you went on, one of the things that w- drew me to your story and to your life and to your work is the fact that you um, went on to, help be a key architect of the LGBT studies program. Mm-hmm. One of the key architects, uh, or no, they, they deem you as the key architect, uh, the, the LGBT studies program at Syracuse university, uh, or the program, uh, started a year after you arrived there in 2015. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry, in 20, uh, 2005, excuse me, right. uh, 2005. And that program has since then um, been named as one of the nation's top LGBT friendly institutions. So that, well, the the university has been. Mm -hmm. So um, what has, what was your goal once you arrived there? What was, did you set out to start this program or were you just showing up to teach? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I, you know, I think it's, it's an exaggeration to call me the chief architect, truly. (laughs) Because, you know, people were mobilizing already Mm -hmm. to try to get a program within Mm -hmm. the school, right? Mm -hmm. They needed, they needed someone who had some national visibility to, it was, it was a strategic decision on their part it was a good decision. They needed someone who had some national visibility and some weight beyond the local community. Mm-hmm. And so they set out to to find somebody. Mm-hmm. Um, I had, I'd been doing, you know, my life, my writing, my organizing. And in the course of that, I had acquired some national visibility uh, partly because of the book I wrote about the children, Crime Against Nature. It won a, a mainstream poetry award. I was the first out gay person to ever get this particular award from the wow. Academy of American Poets. You know, so there was a, a, a kind of a pattern there that was useful to the people at SEU. Mm-hmm. And so they had a plan uh, of how to develop acceptance uh, in, within the university mm-hmm. um, and uh, developing it academically as well. And I was part of that. Mm-hmm. I did teach the first uh, LGBT course ever at Syracuse. Okay. And, uh, and that, was, that was a thrill. Uh, uh, mm-hmm. You know, it was a huge thrill. It really was mm-hmm. to be, to be, I don't know, to have come to that place in my life where Mm -hmm. I could make space for the people coming through, you know, also maybe for the first time. And I just tried to make a space. I I remembered, you know, what we, you and I've been talking about being, being, trying to find my way, Mm -hmm. not having the language, not having the history, Mm -hmm. um, not knowing about the other movements. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. And I, so I try, I just tried to teach the class in a very open and flexible way where anybody who took it, no matter where they were on the sexuality and gender spectrum Mm -hmm. could find room for themselves and find a place for themselves um, and 
even when there might be a lot of pressure in their personal life or even in the public, you know, because mm-hmm. we were still struggling. You know, it was before marriage was legal. It mm-hmm. was before it was before the sodomy statutes had been ruled unconstitutional. Sure. You know, there were all these things that still we were struggling about, but it, we were on the cusp of winning those battles as well. Sure. So the, the, the work at Syracuse really came at a very different stage in the movement mm-hmm. where there was some room. Like I, I got hired. This is the irony. I spent my entire life as a teacher, 45, 40 years um, well, really, 35 years before I got to Syracuse, I was a part-time teacher because for most of that time, people who were gay were fired for being teachers. Mm-hmm. They were, fi- you know, all my friends when I first started out who were teaching at universities, when they came out, they got fired. Mm-hmm. So I, I never had a permanent job as a college teacher. I had those those one semester contracts wow. where they pay you a thousand dollars a class to teach. Mm-hmm. Like I lived a very, you know, economically fragile life for mm-hmm. 35 years, no health insurance, mm-hmm. you know, all that. And then, but I, I did my work. I did what I said I was going to do. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to let them defeat me. I'm going to do my work and the work of the movement. And I did it. And so the irony is in 2005, when they wanted somebody (laughs) to be the first one in this program, they hired me, right? But I was still on a part-time contract. Um, I was paid better, but I didn't have job security. Every, Every year, every couple of years, every three years, I would have to go in and bargain my contract again Mm. to get, to get hired. Mm -hmm. I managed to stay there for 10 years. It was the longest I'd ever been anywhere, but I was always a part-timer even then. Yeah. You know, (laughs) it's just, we, there, and, and the, you know, the struggle continues this last year in June, June, 2020, finally the Supreme court ruled that at a federal level, there could be no discrimination on the basis of sexuality. Mm-hmm. They decided that discrimination on the basis of sex covered LGBTQ people. Okay. June 2020. Mm-hmm. I, I retired in 2016. So, you know. Man, that's often how <laughs> it happens. Uh, the people who put in a tremendous amount of work to get, you know, make these changes come about. Uh, I mean, I guess you didn't necessarily weren't able to benefit from that ruling directly, but you were able to to see it, you know, come to fruition. So I guess hopefully that's a, a little bit of a, not solace, but it's a, it's. <laughs> oh, uh, it's, a, it's completely a solace. I, I don't tell this to say poor me sure. because I've, I've had the life I wanted to have. That's brilliant. I ha- I've had the life I chose, mm-hmm. but it's just to remind people how, recent some of these victories still are and they and also to remind people and I think your listeners probably already know this but still there are other struggles underway Mm -hmm. that are underway to complete struggles that were begun in the last century and I think of Black Lives Matter Mm -hmm. right there's still struggles to be won just because we won them in part in our lives. That doesn't mean we stop 
fighting. Sure. Right. Absolutely. That that's one of my biggest gripes is I feel like everybody feels like, you know, Martin Luther King died for our sins on April 4th, 1968, <laughs> and all racism was miraculously uh, wiped away. Uh, but then you turn, you come down the road 60, 50, 60 years later, and basically the same stuff is going on. So I think it's very, uh, that's what happens when you, you kind of rest on your laurels, so to speak, as a society. Um, and so that's actually a brilliant kind of segue question into uh, the, the, one of my other questions that I had. In a lot of ways, the LGBTQ community has uh, seen some um, some success, you know, moving forward, have a better visibility, more enjoying more freedoms, um, and more acceptance in the larger world. But as you just said, we haven't, we're not done yet. So what are your reflections on this general journey uh, and the state of the, the LGBT community, LGBTQ community today, uh, particularly though with Southern LGBTQ mm-hmm. folks? Um, mm-hmm. and I know it's, some people are like, oh, why would you make a distinction? But the, the worlds are different, you know, I think uh, in, in other Absolutely. places. So uh, what are your thoughts on that? Absolutely. I think it's something I talk to my friends up North about frequently where I just tell them they don't really understand the role of religion in the South and Christianity, mm-hmm. um, that they, 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 it's very far from their reality. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, I say, you know, in a small town, your social life is your church in mm-hmm. general. Mm-hmm. It was when I was growing up. Mm-hmm. It hasn't changed that much. Nope. But the the thing that I think, I mean, I know that they're, you know, progressive and forward-thinking people in the South whose religion is also progressive. Mm -hmm. The thing that is the fact that's also true in the South is that Christianity was used from the beginning as a repressive religion Mm -hmm. uh, to justify enslavement, to justify segregation, Mm -hmm. not all all currents of Christianity, but the current of Christianity that was the dominant current that belonged to the landowners, the enslavers, Mm -hmm. the big business people, Mm -hmm. you know, and it has had a unfortunate impact, Mm -hmm. to say the least, Mm -hmm. on people who were not big landowners and Mm -hmm. big you know, big business people, just regular folks, that kind of Christianity has really existed. Uh, that right wing Christianity, I would call it the Christianity mm-hmm. that justifies uh, hurting people mm-hmm. and uh, oppressing people. Mm-hmm. And it, 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 I heard it preached from the pulpit of my own church when I was growing up. It's mm-hmm. not like I don't know the reality of it. I'm not making this up from the outside right. <laughs> at all. I lived inside this. Mm-hmm. I know this Christianity. Mm-hmm. It is not the Christianity of love right. that needs to be being taught. Right. And it still dominates. It still dominates in many ways in the South. Mm-hmm. And it shows up you know, it, it continues to show up oppressively. It it turns up in legislation, for mm-hmm. instance. Like I know what's happening right now in Florida and Alabama and Georgia and Mississippi. There are these new anti-transgender bills mm-hmm. that are being put forward. Um, I think a lot of these are about ath- 
athletic athletes, uh, you know, uh, high school athletics. Mm -hmm. They fly in the face of everything. Common sense. The bills are just not. They they don't reflect reality in any way. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. they, they 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 sound the alarm about uh boys being in girls' athletics. But the fact of the matter is the people who are trans who identify as female are not boys anymore. Right. They just aren't. They're more likely to be the ones who are getting beaten up right. because they're being feminine, mm-hmm. beaten up and worse. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Right? That's Tre- in other words, treated as girls because they are, they are identifying as girls wow. and, and living as girls. So the bills are just a continuation of this philosophy that men rule women, women have a, you know, and again, it's a right-wing Christian notion. Mm -hmm. You know, women can only do certain things. Men do these other things. Mm -hmm. Women stay in their place. Mm -hmm. You know, there should be this division. There's a God-given division of men and women. Well, you know, it just flies in the face of the realities of the human species. And if you are a believer in God, surely you believe that God created, created the human species. Right. Hello. You know, (laughs) so the, the old time religion Mm -hmm. that was the religion of the enslavers that is continuing to be a religion of bigotry, Mm -hmm. right. Mm -hmm. Um, Needs to be set aside by the people who consider themselves to be truly Christian mm. and they need to put in, in to action, you know, the philosophy of Jesus. Yes. Right. But, you know, that's up to them. That's not, that's up to the, you know, that's up to them to figure out in the meantime, it doesn't have any place in the legislature, mm. just like George, just like Roy Moore's 10 commandments had no place in the legislature, mm. you know, the country is a, a country of the separation of church and state, and it Absolutely. should should be that way. So, you know, that that's the current battle. I mean, these battles keep sort of revolving through every so often, mm. uh, and people start organizing and uh, push it back. Mm-hmm. And to me, that the, the the bringing out this these kinds of divisions reflects to me the sort of desperation of the people who I understand are afraid that their way of life is passing, but it isn't. They can have small town loving small town life mm-hmm. without being bigoted. Absolutely. You know? I mean, it's often it's, 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 it's so interesting because so it's so many of these issues are an, an internal thing, an internal problem with something outside of yourself. But my thing is if you just, you know, focus on yourself, you won't <laughs> have these issues. Just leave people alone, you know? Like, right. Everybody go about their own life and then... That's right. Yeah. That's right. And just not punish people for being part of the human species. You know, all of science, all of philosophy, all, you know, everything that we know now that this new era has given us 
in terms of understanding the complexity of being a human being. Mm -hmm. Everything shows us that we exist on a vast spectrum Absolutely. of behaviors and and bodies. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And let us just love each other. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's a much more interesting, beautiful, fascinating glorious way to live absolutely i wow i mean we can honestly end the, the conversation there. <laughs> that's a benediction that's a wrap uh, <laughs> i appreciate you saying that so much i mean just thinking about my own um i mean i i, don't, I didn't share this before but i my, my father is a minister i grew up in the church from as a baby all my all my siblings did as well and um i think for me one of my, my spiritual awakening if you will was the um I'm going to, I might mess up here, but the, the scripture, uh, Hebrews 13.1 or 14.1, one of those two, but it's, been, it's been very short, let brotherly love continue. And that's been my kind of, my mm -hmm. mantra, you know, for spirituality and, and, and navigating, you know, my, all that for ever since I found that when I was a pre-teenager and um, I just hope that catches on. <laughs> yeah. Wouldn't that be a wonderful thing? Absolutely. It really would be. Absolutely. It would be. There's so much to be learned from what we learned when we were growing up, I had to, I had to unlearn mm -hmm. a lot, a lot that my, that my father mostly taught me. And yet there's so much, like I said at the beginning that I carry with me, mm -hmm. you know, I, do I have time to tell you one story about a woman I admire? Well, actually, no, that's the, literally the next question I was going to ask. Since oh, it's good. History Month, I want to know who are some of the women who inspire you past and present. So this is a brilliant segue. Yes, please go. Oh, for good. Oh, good. Well, you know, first I want to say that in terms of my adult education mm -hmm. and getting set on the correct path mm -hmm. the that the writings and organizing of african american women women of african descent black women were key for me mm -hmm. people like barbara smith mm -hmm. audrey lord mm -hmm. um patricia hill collins you, you know there were a long list of people whose whose theoretical work i read but not just that i I studied their organizing. Sure. And that was really at the core of the merging of my women's liberation work and my work against racism. Sure. Those women led me out of the wilderness of white racism <laughs> into progressive, positive, you know, anti racist uh, women's liberation action. Sure. But when I was a little girl, Mm -hmm. The person who I have to say had the most long-lasting impact on me was my Aunt Gilder Brown. Okay. She never married. She was born in 1918, 1919. Um, she was my mother's youngest sister. She never married. She supported herself her whole life. Mm -hmm. she, was, she was in the waves during World War II. Okay. Um, and uh, toward the end of her life, she told me this story. She said that when the summer before she was going to start grammar school, which is what we called elementary school when I was growing up, grammar school, mm -hmm. first grade, 
the summer before she was going to start the first grade, she decided that she wanted to get her hair cut like a boy's. Oh. So she walked by herself. So she's like six years old, right? Or five, maybe five at that point even. She walked from the farmhouse down into Centerville, which is about two miles okay. by herself, to the only barber shop in Centerville. Mr. Hicks, a neighbor, was the barber. And she walked in and she said, I want you to cut my hair like a boy's. And when he got through laughing, he said to her, do your parents know you're here? And she lied and said, yes, they know. And then he laughed some more because he knew they didn't. But he cut her hair (laughs) shorter than mine at this moment. Short, (laughs) like a boy's. Uh She went back home. She went, sat down and ate supper. I said, Gilder, what did they say to you? She said, they didn't say a word. Now, that's a very Southern moment. Sure. They didn't say a word. She wore her hair that short for the rest of her life. Wow. For the rest of her life. She was 85 when she told me that story. She died that year. Hmm. And when I brought my trans lover home, Leslie Feinberg, who was a stone butch, lesbian Mm -hmm. when I brought her home and we went to see Gilder Leslie turned to me we were walking up the steps to where she was sitting on the porch and Leslie turned to me and said is that old Butch your aunt Gilder and I said and then I looked at her and I saw it you know really saw it for the first time I said yes that's that's Gilder that's my aunt Gilder and we walked up and Gilder said to Leslie, Leslie, wow. Leslie, because she saw herself. Mm-hmm. They saw each other. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Born in 1918 and lived her life and never used any of those words, right, mm-hmm. to describe herself. Wow but completely was there with me, with Leslie, with, you know, with her life. Mm-hmm. That's incredible. Um, that I'm so glad you told that story. It, that is so rich with so much meaning. And I hope whoever's listening to that, not, not only is just, you know, taken by a beautiful story, but just the, the, that means so much that um, women, that queer folks have been enduring and been here, been here for forever, and they've been enduring and living their lives fully. Um, this ever for a, a, a forever, basically forever, yeah, forever, forever. I know, forever, forever. Not waiting for anybody to give them permission. Right, right. No, just Absolutely. living it, just living it, and like, like you know. Well, forever is really right since the beginning of the human species. Mm-hmm. It's only recently, you know, by recently, I mean comparatively recently, in the last, you know, couple of thousand years or so, that it's become a sin. <laughs> Before that, it wasn't, you know, it was sort of like these small towns that I grew, like Centerville that I grew up in, where there were queer people. And maybe they were disapproved of, but they were living. 
Mm-hmm. It was painful, I'm sure, at times, but they lived. Mm-hmm. They were there. Mm-hmm. You know, I think the big difference is we've made room for us to be happy about it. Right. You know, there's a reason why you're called gay. <laughs> that's what. That's a joke we used to make. <laughs> sure, sure. That's brilliant. Yeah, this is why we're called gay because it makes us happy to live that's this right. way. Wow, that's beautiful. Thank you so much for sharing that. Um, <laughs> you're the, welcome. The last thing I have, you know, with that, I mean, again, that's another benediction moment. But I ask every guest who comes onto the show because you are from Alabama, you do call Alabama home. And um, we're always looking in ways to, to push Alabama forward. Um, so what is your hope for Alabama? And, you know, looking forward, what do you want for Alabama moving forward? Yeah, it was a really good question to mm-hmm. ask at the end. Um, I, I watched not so very long ago a video of the first um, I guess probably then it was Gay Rights, Gay Rights March in Alabama. Mm-hmm. And I can't remember if it was on this video, but I think it was that somebody had the sign, We Dare Defend Our Rights, sure. mm-hmm. which is the state motto, right? Everybody knows that. Mm-hmm. My hope for Alabama is that everybody in Alabama stops using that slogan as a way to enforce oppression, which is Mm -hmm. how it was used during the Wallace years, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Instead, that they take, we dare defend our rights to mean we're going to fight for the rights of other people who are oppressed as hard as we fight for our own rights. We're going to fight against racism, We're going to fight against woman hating. We're going to fight against queer bashing. We're going to fight against people who put people with disabilities down. Mm -hmm. We're going to fight against poverty. We're going to fight for all those things as hard as we fight for anything that touches us personally. Yes. That's my hope. And I have to say, we're getting a good strong fight going on right now in Bessemer where the Amazon workers at Mm -hmm. the warehouse Mm -hmm. are trying to organize a union. I know it's a hard fight because there's all kinds of false information out about unions, but um, that the workers there are connected to their own tradition. They're an 85% black workforce. Mm -hmm. They, they know their own tradition of resistance against all kinds of oppression, including worker resistance back in the thirties and the Mm forties, you know, civil rights resistance. They're fighting for all of us now. Mm -hmm. They really are because Amazon is like, the world giant. And if those workers can organize a union, it will be a breakthrough for every working person in the world, in the world. (laughs) And, oh, I would be so happy if it happened in Alabama. People should try to give them solidarity. If you go to a website called support amazonworkers.org, Support, one one word, supportamazonworkers.org. Then you can find out how to send the messages of support. I really hope everybody does. The voting goes on all month. Mm -hmm. 
all during March. Mm -hmm. So you've got plenty of time to send them messages. And I saw, you know, they, they've been, they've been tweeting. um, Somebody said, oh, it's a tide of, you know, organizing in Alabama. Somebody tweeted that and somebody from the university of Alabama picked it up. Roll tide, you know, Amazons. And now all the, the, um, some of the, some of the university alums are, are sending them money. I hope Auburn will come through too. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Well, you, you know, you said that you hope it's in Alabama and it, 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 it stands a good chance to happen in Alabama too. So much has come out of this state for the betterment yes. of other folks. Um, I've been talking with, or I've been, I was working with Alabama Humanities Alliance and we've been doing this, this series about the black people, black, the black vote in the country. And we talked oh, about right. Last month, it was the Black Panther Party, the original Black Panther Party, which is to say, yes. County. Lowndes County, Alabama. Mm-hmm. People don't know that. Right, right. right. So, right. this year in, uh, in, in, in Tuscaloosa, uh, with, with Amazon, or no, excuse me, in Bessemer, excuse me, and Bessemer, it is not newfangled. It is just a part of the Alabama tradition, right? Like, this That's is right. This is what Absolutely. We- <laughs> Absolutely. It really is. I mean, I get, you know, I get pretty aggravated up north sometimes. You know, I just I just say, do, do you not understand Alabama is an engine, an engine of social change? We just keep cranking it out, mm-hmm. you mm-hmm. know, of progressive social change. And this is just another example in Bessemer. It's not like suddenly some magic wand came down. This is this is the way people have grown up. They people in that workers in that warehouse have parents and grandparents who were, you know, work worker deep 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 social change in the civil rights movement or in the workers' union movement of the thirties mm-hmm. and. So there, there, there's going to be, I hope, another turn of the wheel. And if it does, really, literally, it will affect the global work, working class. That's it will. Yeah. I mean, I just want it so bad. I mean, I'm doing my own, you know, contribution in other kinds of ways, writing articles. And, and I, I'm part of a whole network of people who are doing support, like the support Amazon workers. And there's only so much we can do from the outside. And so Mm -hmm. what I'm hoping is that home folks, home folks Mm -hmm. will let these workers know that they are on their side, that they are with them, that this is a good thing. Absolutely. That, you know, we have a saying, I'm a union member myself. I belong to the National Writers Union. We, there's a saying, fight to have a union and then you fight to make your union fight. Ah. It's not like having it solves every problem in the world, but it gives you more power against people treating you bad. Mm-hmm. Encroachment, right. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, so I don't know. We'll see. We'll see. The next time you and I talk, maybe the vote will be over and we'll know. 
Right. Well, I'm keeping my fingers crossed. You've, this conversation has put a little starch in my back. I am <laughs> so, so uh, thrilled and so just full from this conversation. Thank you so much for joining Aww. me, for sharing your stories. Um, and I hope the listeners are getting as much of it, a fraction, at least, you know, just a, 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 only a fraction of what I've gotten out of it. Um, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Oh, thank you, Jerry. You know, it just has warmed my heart to be talking with somebody from home and <laughs> and and you in particular. So thank you so much for having me. I appreciate that. Take care. <laughs> okay. And I'll see you the next time around. You just listened to the Higher Ground Society podcast interview with Dr. Minnie Bruce Pratt. I'd like to thank Dr. Pratt once again for chatting and sharing her life stories with me. During the show, Dr. Pratt read one of her original poems, Elbows, which can be found in her first collection of poetry, The Sound of One Fork. You can find more of Dr. Pratt's poetry on her website, mbpratt.org. That's mbpratt.org. You can also follow Dr. Pratt on Twitter at mbpratt and on Facebook. The song heard during Dr. Pratt's poetry reading is Bad Old Demons by Lobo Loco. The music for this episode was produced by Birmingham artist and producer Jasmine Garfield. Once again, thank you for listening and tune in later this week for our second Women's History Month 2021 episode. You won't want to miss it. Until then, peace.